Chapter Sixteen, Part One of South. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. South: The Story of Shackleton's Last Expedition, 1914 to 1917, by Sir Ernest Shackleton. Chapter Sixteen, Part One: The Aurora's Drift. After Mackintosh left the Aurora on January 25, 1915, Stenhouse kept the ship with difficulty off Tent Island. The ice anchors would not hold, owing to the continual breaking away of the pack, and he found it necessary much of the time to steam slow ahead against the floes. The third sledging party, under Cope, left the ship on the afternoon of the 31st, with the motor tractor towing two sledges, and disappeared towards Hut Point. Cope's party returned to the ship on February 2nd, and left again on February 5th, after a delay caused by the loose condition of the ice. Two days later, after more trouble with drifting floes, Stenhouse proceeded to Cape Evans, where he took a line of soundings for the winter quarters. During the next month, the Aurora occupied various positions in the neighbourhood of Cape Evans. No secure moorings were available. The ship had to keep clear of threatening floes, dodge growlers and drifting bergs, and find shelter from the blizzards. A sudden shift of wind on February 24th, when the ship was sheltering in the lee of Glacier Tongue, caused her to be jammed hard against the low ice off the glacier, but no damage was done. Early in March, Stenhouse sent moorings ashore at Cape Evans, and on March 11th he proceeded to Hut Point, where he dropped anchor in Discovery Bay. Here he landed stores, amounting to about two months' full rations for twelve men, and embarked Spencer Smith, Stevens, Hook, Richards, Ninnis, and Gaze with two dogs. He returned to Cape Evans that evening. We had a bad time when we were sculling about the sound, first endeavouring to make Hut Point to land provisions, and then looking for winter quarters in the neighbourhood of Glacier Tongue, wrote Stenhouse afterwards. The ice kept breaking away in small floes, and we were apparently no nearer to anywhere than where the sledges left. We were frustrated in every move. The ship broke away from the fast ice in blizzards, and then we went dodging about the sound from the Ross Island side to the western pack, avoiding and clearing floes and growlers in heavy drift when we could see nothing, our compasses unreliable and the ship short-handed. In that homeless time I kept watch and watch with the second officer, and was hard-pressed to know what to do. Was ever ship in such predicament? To the northward of Cape Royds was Taboo, as also was the coast south of Glacier Tongue. In a small stretch of ice-bound coast we had to find winter quarters. The ice lingered on, and all this time we could find nowhere to drop anchor, but had to keep steam handy for emergencies. Once I tried the North Bay of Cape Evans, as it apparently was the only ice-free spot. I called all hands, and, making up a boat's crew with one of the firemen, sent the whaler away with the second officer in charge to sound. No sooner had the boat left ship than the wind freshened from the northward, and large bergs and growlers, setting into the bay, made the place untenable. The anchorage I eventually selected seemed the best available, and here we are drifting, with all plans upset, and we ought to be lying in winter quarters. A heavy gale came up on March 12, and the Aurora, then moored off Cape Evans, dragged her anchor and drifted out of the bay. She went northward, past Cape Barn and Cape Royds, in a driving mist, with a heavy storm sea running. 
This gale was a particularly heavy one. The ship and gear were covered with ice, owing to the freezing of spray, and Stenhouse had anxious hours amid the heavy, ice-encumbered waters, before the gale moderated. The young ice, which was continually forming in the very low temperature, helped to reduce the sea as soon as the gale moderated, and the aurora got back to Cape Evans on the evening of the 13th. Ice was forming in the bay, and on the morning of the 14th Stenhouse took the ship into position for winter moorings. He got three steel hawsers out and made fast to the shore anchors. These hawsers were hove tight, and the aurora rested then, with her stern to the shore, in seven fathoms. Two more wires were taken ashore the next day. Young ice was forming around the ship, and under the influence of wind and tide this ice began early to put severe strains upon the moorings. Stenhouse had the fires drawn and the boiler blown down on the 20th, and the engineer reported at that time that the bunkers contained still 118 tons of coal. The ice broke away between Cape Evans and Cape Barn on the 23rd, and pressure around the ship shattered the bay ice and placed heavy strains on the stern moorings. The young ice, about four inches thick, went out eventually and left a lead along the shore. The ship had set in towards the shore owing to the pressure, and the stern was now in four and a half fathoms. Stenhouse tightened the moorings and ran out an extra wire to the shore anchor. The nature of the ice movements is illustrated by a few extracts from the log. March 27th, 5 p.m. Ice broke away from shore and started to go out. 8 p.m. Light southerly airs. Fine. Ice setting out to northwest. Heavy pressure of ice on starboard sides and great strain on moorings. 10 p.m. Ice clear of ship. March 28th. New ice forming over bay. 3 a.m. Ice which went out last watch set in towards bay. 5 a.m. Ice coming in and overriding newly formed bay ice. Heavy pressure on port side of ship. Wires frozen into ice. 8 a.m. Calm and fine. New ice setting out of bay. 5 p.m. New ice formed since morning cleared from bay, except area on port side of ship and stretching a beam and a head for about 200 yards, which is held by bites of wire. New ice forming. March 29th, 1.30 p.m. New ice going out. 2 p.m. Hands on flow on port quarter clearing wires. Stern in three fathoms. Hold wires tight, bringing stern more to eastward and in four fathoms. Hove in about one fathom of starboard cable, which had dragged during recent pressure. April 10th, 1.30 p.m. Ice breaking from shore under influence of southeast wind. Two starboard quarter wires parted. All bites of stern wires frozen in ice. Chain taking weight. 2 p.m. Ice opened, leaving ice in bay in line from cape to landward of glacier. 8 p.m. Fresh wind. Ship holding ice in bay. Ice in sound, wind driven to northwest. April 17th, 1 a.m. Pressure increased and wind shifted to northwest. Ice continued to override and press into shore until 5 o'clock. During this time, pressure into bay was very heavy. Movement of ice in straits causing noise like heavy surf. Ship to ground gently at rudder post during pressure. Bottom under stern shallows very quickly. 10 p.m. Ice moving out of bay to westward. Heavy strain on after moorings and cables, which are cutting the flow. 
Stenhouse continued to nurse his moorings against the onslaughts of the ice during the rest of April and the early days of May. The breakaway from the shore came suddenly and unexpectedly on the evening of May 6th. May 6, 1915. Fine morning with light breezes from east-southeast. 3.30 p.m. Ice nearly finished. Sent hands ashore for sledge load. 4 p.m. Wind freshening with blizzardy appearance of sky. 8 p.m. Heavy strain on aftermoorings. 9.45 p.m. The ice parted from the shore. All moorings parted. Most fascinating to listen to waves and chain breaking. In the thick haze I saw the ice astern breaking up and the shore receding. I called all hands and clapped relieving tackles, four-inch manila luff tackles, onto the cables on the fore part of the windlass. The boatswain had rushed along with his hurricane lamp and shouted, "'She's away with it!' He's a good fellow and very conscientious. I ordered steam on main engines, and the engine-room staff with Hook and Ninnis turned to. Grady, fireman, was laid up with a broken rib. As the ship, in the solid flow, set to the northwest, the cables rattled and tore at the hawse-pipes. Luckily, the anchors, lying as they were on a strip-sloping bottom, came easily away, without damage to windlass or hawse-pipes. Slowly, as we disappeared into sound, the light in the hut died away. At 11.30 p.m., the ice around us started to break up, the floes playing tattoo on the ship's sides. We were out in the sound and catching the full force of the wind. The moon broke through the clouds after midnight and showed us the pack, stretching continuously to northward and about one mile to the south. As the pack from the southward came up and closed in on the ship, the swell lessened and the banging of floes alongside eased a little. May 7, 8 a.m. Wind east-southeast. Moderate gale with thick drift. The ice around ship is packing up and forming ridges about two feet high. The ship is lying with head to the eastward, Cape Bird showing to northeast. When steam is raised I have hopes of getting back to the fast ice near the glacier tongue. Since we have been in winter quarters, the ice has formed and, held by the islands and land at Cape Evans, has remained north of the tongue. If we can return, we should be able now to moor to the fast ice. The engineers are having great difficulty with the sea connections, which are frozen. The main bow-down cock, from which the boiler is run up, has been tapped, and a screw-plug put into it to allow of a hot iron rod being inserted to thaw out the ice between the cock and the ship's side, about two feet of hard ice. 4.30 p.m. The hot iron has been successful. Donnelly, second engineer, had the pleasure of stopping the first spurt of water through the pipe. He got it in the eye. Fires were lit in furnaces, and water commenced to blow in the boiler, the first blow in our defence against the terrific forces of nature in the Antarctic. 8 p.m. The gale has freshened, accompanied by thick drift. The aurora drifted helplessly throughout May 7th. On the morning of May 8th, the weather cleared a little, and the western mountains became indistinctly visible. Cape Bird could also be seen. The ship was moving northwards with the ice. The daylight was no more than a short twilight of about two hours' duration. The boiler was being filled with ice, which had to be lifted aboard, broken up, passed through a small porthole to a man inside, and then carried to the manhole on top of the boiler. Stenhouse had the wireless aerial rigged during the afternoon, and at 5 p.m. was informed that the watering of the boiler was complete. 
the wind freshened to a moderate southerly gale, with thick drift, in the night, and this gale continued during the following day, the ninth. The engineer reported at noon that he had forty pounds pressure in the boiler, and was commencing the thawing of the auxiliary sea connection pump by means of a steam pipe. Cape Bird is the only land visible, bearing northeast true about eight miles distant, wrote Stenhouse on the afternoon of the ninth. So this is the end of our attempt to winter in McMurdo Sound. Hard luck after four months buffeting, for the last seven weeks of which we nursed our moorings. Our present situation calls for increasing vigilance. It is five weeks to the middle of winter. There is no sun, the light is little and uncertain, and we may expect many blizzards. We have no immediate water supply, as only a small quantity of fresh ice was aboard when we broke drift. The aurora is fast in the pack, and drifting God knows where. Well, there are prospects of a most interesting winter drift. We are all in good health, except Grady, whose rib is mending rapidly. We have good spirits, and we will get through. But what of the poor beggars at Cape Evans, and the southern party? It is a dismal prospect for them. There are sufficient provisions at Cape Evans, Hut Point, and I suppose Cape Royds, but we have the remaining Burberries, clothing, etc., for next year's sledging, still on board. I see little prospect of getting back to Cape Evans, or anywhere in the Sound. We are short of coal, and held firmly in the ice. I hope she drifts quickly to the northeast. Then we can endeavour to push through the pack and make for New Zealand, coal, and return to the barrier eastward of Cape Crozier. This could be done, I think, in the early spring, September. We must get back to aid the depot-laying next season. A violent blizzard raged on May 10th and 11th. "'I never remember such wind force,' said Stenhouse. "'It was difficult to get along the deck.' The weather moderated on the 12th, and a survey of the ship's position was possible. "'We are lying in a field of ice, with our anchors and seventy-five fathoms of cable on each, hanging at the bows. The aftermoorings were frozen into the ice astern of us at Cape Evans.' Previous to the date of our leaving our winter berth, four small wires had parted. When we broke away the chain, two of the heavy, four-inch wires parted close to shore. The other wire went at the butts. The chain and two wires are still fast in the ice and will have to be dug out. This morning we cleared the ice around the cables, but had to abandon the heaving in as the steam froze in the return pipes from the windless exhaust, and the joints had to be broken and the pipe thawed out. Hook was listening in from 8.30 p.m. to 12.30 a.m. for the Macquarie Island Wireless Station, 1,340 miles away, or the Bluff New Zealand Station, 1,860 miles away, but had no luck. The anchors were hove in by dint of much effort on the 13th and 14th, ice forming on the cable as it was hoisted through a hole cut in the floe. Both anchors had broken, so the Aurora had now one small catch-anchor left aboard. The ship's position on May 14th was approximately 45 miles north, 34 west of Cape Evans. In one week we have drifted 45 miles, geographical. Most of this distance was covered during the first two days of the drift. We appear to be nearly stationary. What movement there is in the ice seems to be to the northwest towards the ice-bound coast. Hands who were after penguins yesterday reported much noise in the ice about one mile from the ship. I hope the flow around the ship is large enough to take its own pressure. We cannot expect much pressure from the south, as McMurdo Sound should soon be frozen over and the ice holding. Northeast winds would drive the pack in from the Ross Sea. I hope for the best. 
Plans for future development are ready, but probably will be checkmated again. I took the anchors aboard. They are of no further use as separate anchors, but they ornament the forecastle, so we put them in their places. The supply of fresh water is a problem. The engineer turns steam from the boiler into the main water tank, starboard, through a pipe leading from the main winch pipe to the tank top. The steam condenses before reaching the tank. I hope freezing does not burst the tank. A large tabular iceberg, carved from the barrier, is silhouetted against a twilight glow in the sky about ten miles away. The sight of millions of tons of fresh ice is most tantalizing. It would be a week's journey to the berg and back, over pack and pressure, and probably we could bring enough ice to last two days. The record of the early months of the aurora's long drift in the Ross Sea is not eventful. The galley condenser was rigged, but the supply of fresh water remained a problem. The men collected fresh fallen snow when possible and hoped to get within reach of fresh ice. Hook and Ninnis worked hard at the wireless plant with the object of getting into touch with Macquarie Island, and possibly sending news of the ship's movements to Cape Evans. They got the wireless motor running and made many adjustments of the instruments and aerials, but their efforts were not successful. Emperor penguins approached the ship occasionally, and the birds were captured whenever possible for the fresh meat they afforded. The aurora was quite helpless in the grip of the ice, and after the engine-room bilges had been thawed and pumped out, the boilers were blown down. The pressure had been raised to sixty pounds, but there was no chance of moving the ship, and the supply of coal was limited. The story of the aurora's drift during long months can be told briefly by means of extracts from Stenhouse's logs. May 21st. Early this morning there appeared to be movements in the ice. The grating and grinding noise makes one feel the unimportance of men in circumstances like ours. Twilight, towards noon, showed several narrow, open leads about two cables from ship and in all directions. Unable to get bearing, but imagine that there is little or no alteration in ship's position, as ship's head is same, and western mountains appear the same. Hope all is well at Cape Evans, and that the other parties have returned safely. Wish we could relieve their anxiety. May 22nd. Obtained good bearings of Beaufort Island, Cape Ross, and Dunlop Island, which put the ship in a position 18 miles south, 75 degrees east, true, from Cape Ross. Since the 14th, when reliable bearings were last obtained, we have drifted northwest by north, 7 miles. May 24th. Blizzard from south-southeast continued until 9 p.m., when it moderated, and at 11.45 p.m. wind shifted to northwest, light with snow. Quite a lot of havoc has been caused during this blow, and the ship has made much northing. In the morning the crack south of the ship opened to about three feet. At 2 p.m. felt heavy shock, and the ship heeled to port about 70 degrees. Found ice had cracked from port gangway to northwest, and parted from ship from gangway along to stern. Crack extended from stern to southeast. 7.35 p.m. Ice cracked from port four chains in line parallel to previous crack. The ice broke again between the cracks and drifted to northwest for about ten yards. The ice to southward then commenced to break up, causing heavy strain on ship and setting apparently north in large broken fields. Ship badly jammed in. 9.15 p.m. Ice closed in again round ship. Two heavy wind squalls with a short interval between, followed by cessation of wind. We are in a labyrinth of large rectangular flows, some with their points pressing heavily against ship, and high pressure ridges. May 25th. 
In middle watch felt pressure occasionally. Twilight showed a scene of chaos all around. One floe about three feet in thickness had upended, driven under ship on port quarter. As far as can be seen there are heavy blocks of ice screwed up on end, and the scene is like a graveyard. I think swell must have come up under ice from seaward, northeast, McMurdo Sound, and broken the ice, which afterwards started to move under the influence of the blizzard. Hardly think swell can come from the sound, as the cracks were wending from northwest to southeast, and also as the sound should be getting ice-bound by now. If swell came from northeast, then there is open water not far away. I should like to know. I believe the Ross Sea is rarely entirely ice-covered. Have bright moonlight now, which accentuates everything, the beauty and loneliness of our surroundings, and uselessness of ourselves while in this prison. So near to Cape Evans, and yet we might as well be anywhere as here. Have made our sledging ration scales, and crew are busy making harness and getting sledging equipment ready for emergencies. Temperature 30 degrees Fahrenheit. May 26th. If the ship is nipped in the ice, the ship's company, eighteen hands, will take to four sledges with one month's rations and make for nearest land. Six men and one sledge will endeavour to make Cape Evans via the western land, Butler Point, Hut Point, etc. The remaining twelve will come along with all possible speed, but no forced marches, killing and deputing penguins and seals for emergency retreats. If the ship remains here and makes no further drift to the north, towards latter end of July, light will be making. The sun returns August 23rd. The sea ice should be fairly safe, and a party of three, with one month's rations, will proceed to Cape Evans. If the ice sets north and takes the ship clear of land, we will proceed to New Zealand, bunker, get extra officer and four volunteers, provisions, etc., push south with all speed to the barrier, put party onto the barrier, about two miles east of Cape Crozier, and land all necessary stores and requirements. The ship will stand off until able to reach Cape Evans. If necessary, party will depot all stores possible at corner camp and go on to Cape Evans. If worse has happened, my party will lay out the depot at the Beardmore for Shackleton. If the ship is released from the ice after September, we must endeavour to reach Cape Evans before going north to Bunker. We have not enough coal to hang about the Sound for many days. May 28th. By the position obtained by meridian altitude of stars and bearing of Mount Melbourne, we have drifted thirty-six miles northeast from last bearings taken on twenty-third instant. The most of this must have been during the blizzard of the twenty-fourth. Mount Melbourne is one hundred and eleven miles due north of us, and there is some doubt in my mind as to whether the peak which we can see is this mountain. There may be a mirage. In the evening had the football out on the ice by the light of a beautiful moon. The exercise and break from routine are a splendid tonic. Ice noises sent all hands on board. June 1st. Thick, hazy weather. In the afternoon, a black streak appeared in the ice, about a cable's length to the westward, and stretching north and south. 8 p.m. The black line widened and showed long lane of open water. Apparently we are fast in a flow which has broken from the main field. With thick weather we are uncertain of our position and drift. It will be interesting to find out what this crack in the ice signifies. I am convinced that there is open water not far distant in the Ross Sea. Tonight, Hook is trying to call up Cape Evans. If the people at the hut have rigged the set which was left there, they will hear all well from the aurora. I hope they have. Aside, the messages were not received. End of aside. June 8th. Made our latitude 75-59 south by altitude of Sirius. 
This is a very monotonous life, but all hands appear to be happy and contented. Find that we are not too well off for meals, and will have to cut rations a little. Grady is taking exercise now, and should soon be well again. He seems very anxious to get to work again, and is a good man. No wireless calls to-night, as there is a temporary breakdown, condenser jar broken. There is a very faint display of aurora in the northern sky. It comes and goes almost imperceptibly, a most fascinating sight. The temperature is 20 degrees Fahrenheit. 52 degrees of frost is much too cold to allow one to stand for long. June 11th. Walked over to a very high-pressure ridge about a quarter of a mile north-northwest of the ship. In the dim light, walking over the ice is far from being monotonous, as it is almost impossible to see obstacles, such as small snowed-up bridges, which makes us wary and cautious. A dip in the sea would be the grand finale, but there is little risk of this, as the water freezes as soon as a lane opens in the ice. The pressure ridge is about fifteen to twenty feet high, for several hundred feet, and the ice all about it is bent up in a most extraordinary manner. At nine p.m., Hook called Cape Evans, all well aurora, etc., 10 p.m. Weather reports for 8 p.m. sent to Wellington, New Zealand, and Melbourne, via Macquarie Island. Aside, the dispatch of messages from the Aurora was continued, but it was learned afterwards that none of them had been received by any station. End of aside. June 13th. The temperature in the chart room ranges from zero to a little above freezing point. This is a very disturbing factor in rates of the chronometers, five in number, three GMT and two SID-T, which are kept in cases in a padded box, each case covered by a piece of blanket, and the box covered by a heavy coat. In any enclosed place where people pass their time, the niches and places where no heat penetrates are covered with frozen breath. There will be a big thaw-out when the temperature rises. June 14th. Mount Melbourne is bearing north 14 degrees west. True. Our approximate position is forty miles east-northeast of northern Skjold Ice Tongue. At 9 p.m., Hook called Cape Evans and sent weather reports to Wellington and Melbourne via Macquarie Island. Hook and Ninnis, on several evenings at about 11 o'clock, have heard what happened to be faint messages, but unreadable. He sent word to Macquarie Island of this, in hopes that they would hear and increase the power. June 20. During this last blow, with its accompanying drift snow, there has been much leakage of current from the aerial during the sending of reports. This is apparently due to induction caused by the snow accumulating on the insulators aloft, and thus rendering them useless, and probably to increased inductive force of the current in a body of snow drift. Hook appears to be somewhat downhearted over it, and, after discussing the matter, gave me a written report on the non-success up to the present time, of his endeavours to establish communication. He thinks that the proximity of the magnetic pole and aurora australis might affect things. The radiation is good and sufficient for normal conditions. His suggestion to lead the down-lead wires out to the ahead and astern would increase scope, but I cannot countenance it, owing to unsettled state of ice and our two lofty poles. June 21st Blowing gale from southwest throughout day, but for short spell of westerly breeze about 5 p.m. Light drift at frequent intervals, very hazy, and consequently no land in sight during short twilight. Very hard up for mitts and clothing. What little we have on board I have put to one side for the people at the hut. 
have given Thompson instructions to turn crew to making pyramids and helmet out of jager fleas for all hands forward. With strict economy we should make things spin out. Cannot help worrying over our people at the hut. Although worrying does no good, one cannot do otherwise in this present impotent state. 11 p.m. Wind howling and whistling through rigging. Outside, in glare of moon, flying drift and expanse of ice-field. Desolation. June 22nd. Today the sun has reached the limit of his northern declination, and now he will start to come south. Observe this day as a holiday, and in the evening had hands aft to drink to the health of the king and the expedition. All hands are happy, but miss the others at Cape Evans. I pray to God we may soon be clear of this prison, and in a position to help them. We can live now for sunline and activity. July 1st. The 1st of July. Thank God. The days pass quickly. Through all my waking hours one long thought of the people at Cape Evans, but one must appear to be happy, and take interest in the small happenings of shipboard. July 3rd. Rather hazy with very little light. Moderate west-northwest to southwest winds until noon, when wind veered to south and freshened. No apparent change in ship's position. The berg is on the same bearing, one point on the port quarter, and apparently the same distance off. Mount Melbourne was hidden behind a bank of clouds. This is our only landmark now, as Franklin Island is towered in perpetual gloom. Although we have had the berg in sight during all the time of our drift from the entrance to McMurdo Sound, we have not yet seen it in a favourable light, and, were it not for its movement, we might mistake it for a tabular island. It will be interesting to view our companion in the returning light, unless we are too close to it. July 5th. Dull, grey day, during twilight, with light, variable, westerly breezes. All around hangs a heavy curtain of haze, and, although very light snow is falling, overhead is black and clear with stars shining. As soon as the faint noon light fades away, the heavy low haze intensifies the darkness and makes one thankful that one has a good firm berth in the ice. I don't care to contemplate the scene if the ice should break up at the present time. July 6th. Last night I thought I saw open water in the shape of a long black lane to the southward of the ship, and extending in an easterly and westerly direction, but owing to the haze and light snow I could not be sure. This morning the lane was distinctly visible, and appeared to be two or three hundred yards wide and two miles long. At six p.m. loud pressure noises would be heard from the direction of the open lane, and continued throughout the night. Shortly after eight o'clock the grinding and hissing spread to our starboard bow, west-southwest, and the vibration caused by the pressure could be felt intermittently on board the ship. The incessant grinding and grating of the ice to the southward with seething noises as of water rushing under the ship's bottom, and ominous sounds, kept me on the qui-vive all night, and the prospect of a break-up of the ice would have wrecked my nerves, had I not had them numbed by previous experiences. July 9th. At noon, the sky to the northward had cleared sufficiently to allow of seeing Mount Melbourne, which appears now as a low peak to the northwest. Ship's position is twenty-eight miles north-northeast of Franklin Island. On the port bow and ahead of the ship there are some enormous pressure ridges. They seem to be the result of the recent and present ice movements. Pressure heard from the southward all day. July 13th. At 5 p.m. very heavy pressure was heard on the port beam and bow, south, and very close to the ship. 
This occurred again at irregular intervals. Quite close to the ship the ice could be seen bending upwards, and occasional jars were felt on board. I am inclined to think that we have set into a cul-de-sac, and that we will now experience the full force of pressure from the south. We have prepared for the worst, and can only hope for the best. A release from the ice with a seaworthy vessel under us. July 18th. This has been a day of events. About 8 a.m. the horizon to the north became clear, and, as the light grew, the more westerly land showed up. This is the first clear day that we have had since the ninth of the month, and we have set a considerable distance to the northeast in the meantime. By meridian altitudes of the stars and bearings of the land, which proved to be Coleman Islands, Mount Murchison, and Mount Melbourne, our position shows seventy-eight miles geographical northeast by north of Franklin Island. During the last three days we have drifted forty miles geographical, so there has been ample reason for all the grinding and growling of pressure lately. The ship endured some severe squeezes this day. July 20th. Shortly before breakfast the raucous voice of the Emperor Penguin was heard, and afterwards two were seen some distance from the ship. The nearest mainland, in vicinity of Cape Washington, is ninety miles distant, as also is Coleman Island. Franklin Island is eighty miles southeast by south, and the pack is in motion. This is the Emperor's hatching season, and here we meet them out in the cheerless desert of ice. 10.45 p.m. Heavy pressure around ship. Lanes opened, and ship worked astern about twenty feet. The wires in the ice took the strain. Lashings at mizzen chains carried away. And carried away fair lead bollard on port side of forecastle head. July 21st. 1 a.m. Lanes opened to about forty feet wide. Ship in open pool about one hundred feet wide. Heavy pressure in vicinity of ship. Called all hands and cut wires at the forecastle head. Aside, these wires had remained frozen in the ice after the ship broke away from her moorings, and they had served a useful purpose at some times by checking ice movements close to the ship. End of aside. 2 a.m. Ship swung athwart lane as the ice opened, and the floes on the port side pressed her stern round. 11.30 a.m. Pack of killer whales came up in the lane around the ship, some broke soft ice, about one inch thick, and pushed their heads through, rising to five or six feet perpendicularly out of the water. They were apparently having a look around. It is strange to see killers in this immense field of ice. Open water must be nearer, I think. 5.15 p.m. New ice of lanes cracked and opened. Flows on port side pushed stern onto ice of flow. Flows then closed in and nipped the ship fore and aft, the rudder was bent over to starboard and smashed. The solid oak and iron went like matchwood. 8 p.m. Moderate south-southwest gale with drift. Much straining of timbers with pressure. 10 p.m. Extra hard nip fore and aft. Ship visibly hogged. Heavy pressure. End of chapter 16, part 1